This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org. Welcome to the JMR podcast. I'm David Johnson, your host for today's podcast. We are recording on June 15, 2022, and my guest today is Jimmy Bush, Director for Quality and Engagement at the Washington Medical Commission. Jimmy is the lead author on the article, An Evaluation of Clinicians with Subsequent Disciplinary Actions, which appears in the current issue of the Journal of Medical Regulation. Jimmy, welcome to the JMR podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Great. Well, we're happy to have you joining us. Now, Jimmy, before we go into any specifics of your article, can you just talk a little bit about how it is you came to focus on this particular line of research? So I think at some point in your work, even if you you know, don't necessarily work for a medical board, you're always going to ask yourself, am I doing a good job? Are we making a difference? Are mandates being met and, you know, hopefully exceeded? Um, so really, we, we took on this research almost as an exploratory mission to see if we could be doing anything better as a regulator. And part of that is asking a hard question question like, is recidivism something that happens in the outliers of the bell curve? Or are there clear patterns and occurrences where we could provide intervention? Um, you know, I like to I like to tell people that you don't know what you don't know. And asking questions and looking at the data is really how you get a little bit closer to those answers. Well, great. Well, you know, speaking of data, then, Jimmy, let's start with some basic numbers. Your analyses uh, looked at providers with disciplinary actions between 2008 and 2020. So how many providers are we talking about? How many providers did this involve? How many fell into the recidivist category? And uh, so what were the demographics of this group? You know, gender, uh, specialty, the type of practice, things like that. Of course. So the total amount in this time period was 975 providers. Those are all of the disciplinary data we had over this time frame, And 68 fell into our definition of a recidivist, meaning that they had more than one disciplinary action taken against them in this time frame. Now, 70%, or excuse me, 76% of those recidivists were male, 53% were in solo practice, and 29% identified as their specialty being family practice. Now, being a male in family practice really wasn't that surprising because most of our providers fall into at least one of those categories, i.e. being male or mm -hmm. and or um, family practice. However, the solo provider practice type was disproportionate to our demographics since only about 7 percent of our provider population practices in that setting. So in terms of demographics, that was that was a little surprising for us. Jimmy, your article shared some interesting findings around timing. Uh, in particular, uh, there was a key period for recidivists after a disciplinary action. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. 
Uh, of course, we broke the this data, these 975 folks that ended up being 68. We broke those those folks into two time frames, uh, what we called period A, which is the first five years after the sanction or the disciplinary action has been finalized. And then period B, which encompasses the next 10 years after the first five. Um, we did this really because we know that mistakes happen. And the longer you're in practice, statistically, you're going to see more patients. You're going to have more complaints filed against you. Um, and it's just statistically more likely that people will will have another disciplinary event in their career as time goes on. But we were curious to look at if there was a pattern that could be extrapolated from kind of breaking it into, into these two time frames. So we found that time period A, or the first five years after discipline um, occurred, was the most tumultuous time for these folks. Um, they 76% uh, of them had another complaint filed that ultimately uh, ended up in in a disciplinary action, which would be a classification as a recidivist. So, Jimmy, was there any one thing that, though, typically pushed a provider into this recidivist category? I, I know earlier you, you talked about individuals, perhaps uh, like the solo practitioners, for example, being perhaps disproportionately represented here. But was there anything else that typically seemed to push providers into this category? You know, there wasn't one clear indicator or a tipping point that I feel comfortable as an as a data person isolating. Um, like you said, outside of some demographics, i.e. being a solo practitioner, the subsequent discipline for the mm. most part took place because they did not comply with the original order or they violated an order in another state. And so hopefully our listeners will know that disi uh, discipline is reported to the NPDB and other states will oftentimes mirror the original discipline um, from the origin state. So for example, let's say Washington has discipline. There's a provider in Oregon um, the Oregon board will tend to mirror that action. So what this might be telling us, and I want to make sure, I want to make it very clear that I do not have a sample size large enough to definitively make uh, this conclusion, where they sure. have trouble completing the compliance requirements for whatever reason. So if Oregon mirrors that action, they have an issue completing that requirement, then that action gets reported back to Washington and they just keep falling into this loop. So like I said, I don't have a large enough sample size to really make, uh, to say that's the case. And so I, I hope it's something we can investigate further in the future. You know, Jimmy, your article raised an interesting point about communication, uh, physician-patient communication, or, or maybe the lack of good com communication as a factor for some of recidivism. Uh, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I think that we all know that old adage that, you know, communication is a two-way street. And we know that, I mean, just in our everyday lives, there are many different levels levels of communication. The way you talk to your child might be different than the way that you talk to your parent. So we 
just have to assume that the provider may speak with their patient in a way that could impact how that patient feels about what occurred in a visit later on. So, you know, we, we want to stress to a provider that was the procedure that's about to take place explained in plain language? Um, if needed, was there a certified interpreter present? Uh, were there cultural differences that affected the way the patient felt about their care? Any one of these seemingly small details can lead to the filing of a complaint. And of course, if that uh, communication issue isn't resolved, it could lead to another disciplinary action. But I think where sure. a state medical board can evaluate their ability to communicate is by simply making sure that the provider understands what is expected of them while they are under compliance. So in Washington, we have implemented a compliance orientation program that you know, at its core puts a face to our compliance requirements. For some of our providers, this may be their first communication with a commission staff person that isn't a lawyer. Um, so it's important for us to make sure that the provider understands that we really do want to give them every tool for success and the ability to prevent another incident from, from occurring. So the most important part of this is just having that introductory meeting. Or, you know, in this age, it's a video call. But, you know, making sure the provider understands the requirements um, and discuss and hash out any obstacles that may prevent them from meeting those requirements. So during the early days of COVID, people couldn't travel for an evaluation or maybe there was a certain requirement that would create a hardship for their family. Um, this compliance orientation program is that communication tool that we're using to make sure that they understand what is expected of them in that time frame. And if it's going to create a hardship, if need be, we can bring that back to the commission for reconsideration or, you know, maybe there's another way to go about it. Um, so, you know, communication is a two-way street. We can't just write something in legal terms and really expect all providers to understand what that means. Right. But the, you know, just a, another little thing is that we know there's about eight years between initial licensure and the filing of the complaint that ultimately leads to discipline. So we are currently evaluating a program to provide additional assistance when that initial complaint is filed. Um, so, for example, if someone had a complaint filed against them, um, that could be maybe corrected with a little training or possibly a mentorship. We want to reach out to these folks before an error occurs or someone gets hurt and provide these resources for them so that, you know, there's not another complaint filed that will ultimately lead to discipline. And of course, someone, someone being harmed. And we're, we're, we're trying to figure out the best way to go about this because a lot of provi providers don't know that their medical board can be a resource for a lot of the issues they may be having. Um, you know, whether it's burnout or an issue with the EHR, there, there's a lot of things that could be causing stress to these folks. So we want to we be proactive and make that contact before an issue arises. And, you know, we have to go through the discipline process. Well, proactive is always better than reactive, clearly. Um, of you know, course. 
Yeah, as as I reflect on some of uh, your findings in your article, Jimmy, you, you suggested um, several recommendations to address recidivism. Uh, it, you know, it sounds a little, little bit like you've kind of discussed one, clearly a little bit of a more proactive approach. But I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about that. So I think, you know, to keep these folks out of the loop, uh, to make sure that the provider is aware of their obligations while under compliance. That's the big one. Um, providing a dedicated person that they can call if they have a stumbling block along their journey. And even the smallest amount of assistance can be an invaluable resource for providers that are already under a tremendous amount of stress. And then another recommendation recommendation is just that our research shows that there might be an opportunity to provide outreach and education or mentorship uh, to providers that have certain complaint demographics, like if this is their third complaint or this is their third renewal since licensure, um, if they're falling into those demogra those time frame demographics, and of course this will be different for all states. Um, but if they're falling into those areas where, you, you know, you can see a pattern, um, even a little phone call asking if the medical board can be of service or if they have concerns, um, this may, might prevent an error and ultimately discipline. And then lastly, you know, we're you want to be sure to take the information that you're getting through these proactive interventions or compliance programs, um, whatever the vernacular might be for your organization, and making sure that your values and actions are supporting that need. So if a medical board sees that there's a gap in, I mean, let's just say cultural competency, but mm -hmm. doesn't facilitate closing that gap, you know, as the medical board, you have to ask yourself if you're meeting that mandate. So any engagement that you can provide with your provider populations, um, like I said, especially those demographics that we know are at risk, can have a really long lasting impact. So, you know, walk, the, you know, walk the talk. Well, well, Jimmy, I think part of the reason I found this, uh, this particular research so uh, fascinating was the fact that I don't know that there's been a a great deal of uh, additional studies along this lines by on the part of medical boards looking at recidivism amongst their discipline providers. So I, I'm wondering, after having gone through this exercise, conducted this research and, and written up your findings, do you have advice for staff at a medical board who might be interested in doing similar research in their state? Based on my experience, I'm just going to say don't be um, humbled by a small sample size. There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with a research project that just looks at trends and demographics to see if there's an opportunity for improvement. Um, your leaders at your medical board should encourage open and, f you know, honestly, frank dialogue. Uh, one where ideas can be expressed based on your division or expertise, i.e. if you're a lawyer or a clinician, you should have the ability to speak up and talk about what's happening in terms of recidivism. Um, but I really encourage everyone to take a look because the more data we can share across the country, the better equipped we are to help prov providers on a national scale.
I, I think that makes complete sense. And I, I really like, Jimmy, what you said about, you know, don't be afraid if you think that the N that you have involved is fairly small, because while it may be a limited number, but if enough boards are doing research in a given area, the, that N grows into something a little more large, uh, larger collectively. So uh, I'm glad you made right. that I mean, point. It's, it's honestly, it would help me to know, is my solo practitioner sample size, even though that's not representative of our licensee mm -hmm. population, is that a trend that's happening in other places? I don't really know right now. So, you know, even if you, like I said, if you have a small N, uh, still take a look, you know, don't be afraid and let's share the data. I, I absolutely agree. I, I, in fact, I was thinking as you were saying that, Jimmy, of a colleague that talked about, you know, a similar interest in uh, solo practitioners in her home state. I'm talking, thinking of an executive director I had a conversation with, and it's a great example of, you know, information that's shared anecdotally, but I think there's the, still the basis for, you know, some research uh, that could be very helpful when, you know, you put it together collectively. Um, last question for you, Jimmy, which is, what would you like for a, a board member or a staff member from a state medical board to take away from, you know, this, your article or, or this conversation today? I guess we can round it out by just saying, you know, be bold, uh, ask questions. Don't get discouraged if all the answers aren't evident right away, um, especially if you have a small sample size. It's OK if you don't see a trend, but um just look, ask the questions and make sure that you're leaving your implicit biases at the door. Uh, you know, what you may have heard in the past or from another board might not apply to your state. The example being the solo practitioner, that might not be true everywhere. Um, but if there, if there, if you might hold a bias, I think I would just like people to take away that they should reserve their judgment and bring in as many people as you can to review the information and data and make sure that these biases are being addressed and can't say it enough, share your information. <laughs> Absolutely. Jimmy, I really appreciate you uh, talking with us today. To our listeners, you know, you can find Jimmy's article in the current issue of JMR at jmronline.org. I'd like to thank you to our listeners and hope you will all join us for our next JMR podcast. Have a great day. This JMR podcast is sponsored by the Journal of Medical Regulation, serving for over a century as the premier publication on physician licensure, discipline, and regulation. To learn more, visit jmronline.org.